Hey everybody, welcome back to my channel. Thanks so much for tuning in. My name is Dana Trubiana, and every week I cover a new infamous gangster in a true crime-like format. If you're new here, welcome. If you've been here before, I love you so much. I love interacting with you guys. I love that you're a part of this little family that I've built around me, and just thank you so much for all your love and support and for coming back week after week. I'm recording this on Christmas Day, but it'll probably be 2023 when this episode is released, so happy 2023. I hope everybody enjoyed their Christmas and that everybody got to spend some quality time with friends and family. Personally, I didn't do anything. I haven't really celebrated Christmas since my mom died. I haven't really, like, seen a point. But I did get to hang out with my dad. He came home from work, and I hung out with my husband and my dogs, and we all just kind of laid around the house and had a really nice, relaxing day. We didn't do presents, but that's okay. It's more about spending time with the family anyway. Plus, I didn't wake up until, like, 5 o'clock in the afternoon, so it was one of those days. It's nice. I like those days, though, so I'm not complaining. Right now, it's... 2.30 in the morning when I'm just starting to record, but it's good. It's it's way better than, you know, being exhausted all day and having a miserable day because you're tired. I'm feeling okay. Finally, I was sick for so long and I'm feeling like 100% now. So I definitely can't complain, even though it's been seven degrees outside every single day and my house has no insulation. So we literally have tarps posted all over the house to try to keep the warm air in. And we have these two little space heaters and, like, we'll put one in the living room and warm that up and then put one in the bathroom and warm that up. So we're just trying to, like, crisis management. And it's been working out. You know, it's so far so good. Nothing's gone wrong. We're we're taking it day by day. Ignore the dogs over there. They're just, you know, doing their own thing. Hulk's a little uh, uneasy. So he'll be okay. I spent my whole life going to my aunt's house on Christmas Eve, and there was, like, a shit ton of people there. We would do presents for the kids, and we had, like, a grab bag for the adults. It was okay. It was cool. It was great. As long as you were willing to, like, overlook all the horrible, toxic, malicious, nasty shit that they did every other day of the year, it was totally fine and fun and great. When my mom passed away, I just... I just officially stopped keeping people in my life that shit all over me and were horrible human beings on every day of the year but one. And they just did really bad things and they expected you to pretend that because it's Christmas Eve now they were good people for the rest of the year and they weren't. And I just gave up on that. So, you know, I'm I'm enjoying my stress-free life over here. You know, no one's stabbing me in the back every time I turn my head and it's a lot more healthy. It's a lot happier. And I, I couldn't, I mean, I miss my mom every day of my life, but when she died, I also let the effort that I put into family that didn't deserve it die too. So I'm happy. I'm in a very good place and I really can't complain. You know, I still have a whole lot of other stuff going on, you know. I'm about to start round two of the IBFs. Um, I probably will start doing the needles again on Tuesday, which is going to turn me into a nutcase again. But, you know, we <laughs> we do what we got to do. So now I have built a life where I have my husband, I have my dogs, I have my dad, and that is all the people I need in my life, and I couldn't be happier. I'm happy that I had the traditions that I had when I was growing up, but I'm also very happy to not have them any longer and 
this is 100% better for the rest of my life. And I knew that when I was making the decision to go no contact with these people, I knew that in years to come, I was going to be a lot happier. And it would look from the outside in like, oh, she's probably lonely. She doesn't have people in her life. Yes, I don't have people in my life. But you know what? That is way better than having people that just don't give a shit. So anyways, today I'm going to be talking about one of the most infamous and feared figures in the history of organized crime, Tony Accardo. who is also known as Joe Batters and the Big Tuna, was a Sicilian-American who rose to the top of the Chicago outfit during the mid-20th century. He was born on April 28, 1906, in the Little Italy neighborhood of Chicago, Illinois, and his mom was Maria, and his dad was Francesco, and both last name was Accardo. His father had immigrated to the United States from Castella Mare del Golfo, a small town in Sicily, Italy, a year prior to Tony being born. Castella Mare del Golfo is an area, it's a really small area, but it's probably the area that, like, the most heavyweight gangsters come out of. Like, if it's a heavyweight, like, I mean, Salvatore Maranzano came from Castella Mare del Golfo. That's where Joe Bonanno comes from. That's where all these big, big mafia guys come from. So it's funny because it's like this little tiny area in Italy and they all come from there. And it's always at, you know, different times. But if you think of like the United States, it's like having a country with the amount of people of the United States and only talking about people from, let's say, New York. It's it's strange. So he was lucky enough to hail from that region. And he had five brothers and sisters. He was the second of six children. His dad, Francesco, was a shoemaker. And his mom, Maria Telota Accardo, was a stay-at-home mom. Which is just every single woman from Italian background, they're all stay-at-home moms. That's great that a shoemaker is able to provide that life and, and let the woman stay at home and raise the six kids that they had. When he was younger and growing up, Accardo had a very well-defined reputation for being a really tough kid and just, like, ready to fight no matter what. You look at this boy the wrong way and he is ready to fight you. It's a little bit unclear what made him so angry. I mean, they didn't really have money, but he just, he was always mad and he was always ready to fight. He was also a pretty skilled athlete. He excelled pretty well in boxing and in baseball. Boxing was a really common pastime for the lower class that lived in these densely packed Italian neighborhoods at the time. And even though he's this rough kid that loves to run around and fight and everything, he was also really good at school. He was a really bright student and he did very well in math and science. Which is kind of weird. Usually when you see these gangsters that come up to be these infamous hoodlums, they're dropping out of school in eighth grade. So when you see somebody like Accardo, 
that was able to excel in these areas that most aren't. It's a little weird to see them turn out to be a gangster. As a kid, Accardo attended James Otis Elementary School in Chicago from 1911 to 1916, and then he went on to Washington Grade School. And he did well in school. Again, I mean, he did really well in math and science, and it was well known that he did well, which is kind of funny because a lot of times kids that have this rough and tough reputation, they're kind of, oh, they're too good for school, and they don't want to make it look like they care. So even if they are smart enough to make it in school, they'll like diminish that. They won't show up. But he was known for being both ready to fight and very smart and very cunning. So you had to be careful when you were dealing with him. Although he is very bright and very good at school, his parents absolutely hated the education that he was receiving. When he was 14 years old, they filed a delayed birth certificate saying that he was born in April of 1904 instead of April of 1906. So instead of having to wait two more years, when he was 14 years old, they filed a delayed birth certificate saying that he was 16 years old so that he would be able to legally withdraw from school at the age of 14 years old in 1920. And that's what he did. He withdrew from school and started working as a flower delivery boy and a grocery clerk. Up until the day he died, that flower delivery boy and grocery clerk are the only two legitimate jobs that he ever had. At 14 years old, Accardo started loitering around the neighborhood pool halls, and he would hustle people when you act like you're kind of not that great at pool, and then all of a sudden, you know, after a bet is placed, you're really good. That's what he was known to do, and that's how he made some money as a kid. Accardo was arrested eight times for disorderly conduct for hanging out in front of the pool hall where Al Capone frequently visited. So as soon as we start talking about the Al Capone gang, we know that we are dealing with trouble. Even though he was arrested eight times, Accardo used to brag to everybody that would listen that he had never actually spent a night in jail because the mob owned the police and the judges. I'm not really sure why he would be arrested in the first place, if they did, but he had no qualms telling everybody that the mob owned the police department, so... Even though he got arrested time and time and time again, he just walked right out. I'll never understand police and why they waste their time. Like, just go away, but it's what it is. I don't know. Alcardo first entered the world of organized crime as a member of the circus gang. And this is a group of young thieves that would specialize in stealing from circus performers. So I just went to go do a little bit of research and find out, like, what circus was going on in the 1920s in Chicago, and I stumbled upon something that says, here, I'll read it for you. With weakening attendance, many animal rights protests, and high operating costs, the circus performed its final show on May 21st, 2017 at Nassau Veterans Memorial Coliseum and closed after 146 years. I have to go find the pictures, and I will, and I'll put them in this video, but I definitely went to that. I didn't realize that it was the last one that they were ever going to do, but I did go in 2017. It was right before I joined the Army. Me and my friend Alexis went, and her daughter Bella was there, 
and we went to see the Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey show. And there was animal rights protesters there and everything. I mean, but at the same time, like they were performing, whether I was there or not, like I didn't like pay into animal cruelty. They were going to be there either way. And I wanted to be there. So I went to the last one and it was really good. Like it was amazing. We had a crazy, oh my God, that weekend was insanity. Whew. I will never forget that. But yeah, I didn't realize it was the last one that ever happened. And I was there. As far as the one in the 1920s, it looks like it probably was the same one. Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey and Accardo was there to pickpocket and steal every single thing that he could get his hands on from any circus performers at the time. At the same time that he's doing this, he is also hanging around older gangsters and running errands for them. And if you watched Goodfellas at the beginning, when he's a teenager, if they want coffee, if they want anything, like at a, as a teenager, that's how you get into the mafia is just you do stuff like that. You get them coffee, you go get them a paper. If, if they're hungry, you go get them lunch and they'll throw you 30, 40 bucks for doing it. Like that's how you walk away with money. You're 14 years old, $40 is like a lot of freaking money. It was, it was just really easy for somebody that knew from a very young age that they wanted to be in the mafia. That is pretty much the only way to go about it. And he did it. So we all know what's going on in America at the time of the 1920s. And he had joined the mafia around the time that prohibition was going on. He started out as a lookout being the one that would watch out for cops or any like robbers or anything while everybody's doing liquor sales. He's running illegal liquor. He's doing bootlegging. He's doing muggings on people that are doing their own liquor sales and running. And eventually it led up to him starting to do armed robberies. Even though he already had this reputation for being this tough kid, when he started doing armed robberies, he started building that reputation even further. His reputation for carrying out brutal violence and ruthless tactics that he had, it's eventually going to get him noticed by the Chicago outfit and recruited by Al Capone himself. When Capone was looking for some new bodyguards, I don't know why, I think maybe his bodyguards died or he needed new jobs that he needed to get more bodyguards for. I'm not really sure what happened, but he needed more bodyguards. And a friend of Accardo's, Vincenzo Demora, had recommended Accardo for the position. Vincenzo Demora was a hitman of Al Capone's and they spent a lot of time together. So when Capone was like, yeah, I need some bodyguards, Demora was like, oh, I actually have a friend, Accardo. And that's how Accardo ended up working for Capone. So that means that at the age of 20 years old, Tony Accardo was officially a member of the Chicago Outfit and no longer just in the circus gang or the circus cafe gang. Quality of Accardo's that Capone actually really liked was that he was both a very violent man, but he was also very obedient. So he was violent for people that he was supposed to be violent for. Capone would tell him, like, yeah, go go kill that guy. And he'd be like, I bet, yay! Accardo was also very eager to prove his loyalty to the mafia and just kind of one of those, like, you guys haven't ever given me a chance. I'm sitting right here. I've been here since day one. Give me a chance. I'll 
kill for you. And what better way to do that than by taking out this anger and rage that he has on people that Capone perceived as traitors. Early in his career during Prohibition, Accardo's big job was to track down people in the mafia who had betrayed Capone and beat them until they no longer lived with a baseball bat. Capone ate that shit up. He loved this boy, and he gave him the nickname Joe Batters. I don't know where Joe came from. His name's not Joe. But he started calling him that. Maybe after Joe DiMaggio? Yep, it's definitely Joe DiMaggio. Joe DiMaggio was born in 1914, so it probably lines up. Capone was quoted as saying, Boy, that kid is a real Joe Batters. Capone was filled with those, like, quirky little loser comments. <laughs> like, who talks like that? Boy, that boy's a real Joe Batters. Like, <laughs> what a loser. He got his second nickname, The Big Tuna, from Chicago newspapers. After a fishing expedition where Accardo caught a really big tuna and he was famously photographed with the catch. Even though he's got all this rage and anger, Accardo was actually really good at controlling himself. So he's got all this rage that it can be let out on one person when it's directed, but he also has the control and the ability to kind of just quietly be there. He doesn't bother anybody. He doesn't do anything out of pocket. He's not flying off at the handle all the time. And that allowed him to climb through the ranks of the Chicago outfit quicker than anybody had ever done before. So with his ability to be the best of both sides that he needed to be, it gained him some really valuable experience. He was a personal chauffeur for Capone. He was a bodyguard, and Capone started to really trust him. That just got more and more and more solid as every time Capone gave him a job, he carried it out flawlessly. He wasn't scared to go and kill somebody. He wasn't scared to sit around for months on end not doing anything. He really didn't have much of like a high maintenance personality, so it was super easy to just kind of, he's there when you need him, and when there's not an active war going on or anything like that, he's, he's perfectly content to just, like, chill in the corner. It didn't take long before 1926 came around. On October 11th, 1926, Capone decided that the leader of the North Side Gang, Jaime Weiss, was no longer going to be able to just run amok and it was a rival gang and Capone just had enough. He was like, I'm done. We're going to take this man out. When the group went to take out Jaime Weiss, there was a shootout. Jaime did not make it and Accardo did, but he did catch some bullets and him catching some bullets, it went a long way with proving how loyal he was and how much he was willing to put his life on the line in service to Capone and in protection of Capone. So that catapulted his career for sure. On top of that, this whole assassination of Jaime Weiss took place near the Holy Name Cathedral. So not only did they kill one of the rival gang leaders, but they did it at a freaking church. Like, I feel like that's a little bit extra. Not really necessary. But it worked out for Ricardo in the end. On February 14th, 1929, 
the St. Valentine's Day Massacre took place, and Tony Accardo was one of the four shooters on the side of the Chicago outfit. The St. Valentine's Day Massacre took place because George Bugs Moran from the Northside Gang, it seems like he just wanted trouble with Capone. He was taking over bars that Capone had possession of. He was getting paid by these bars, but Bugs Moran decided that, you know, it was his territory, so he took it over. There's also a bunch of squabbles going on on who has control of Chicago's bootlegging ring. And a few people had died already. Pasqualino Patsy Lolardo and Antonio the Scourge Lombardo had lost their lives recently, and both of those guys were on Capone's side. And both of those guys actually had a lot of power in the Union Siciliana. And that was like the local mafia figure, like the Black Hand. That was the OG mafia. And they were friends of Capone's. They're leaders in this group. And Bugs Moran had had them killed because they were on the rival side. So Capone just hit a certain point where he was like, yeah, I'm over this. He invited Bugs Moran and a bunch of his guys to come over and kind of hash it out. He had two of his guys dress up as police officers and lead the men into the garage at gunpoint. And then they took Tommy submachine guns and four of the people in the Chicago outfit took out seven members of the Northside gang. And since it happened on February 14th, it came to be known as the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Nobody was ever arrested for the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, but Accardo was definitely suspect number one. And he was one of the people that was dressed up like the police officer. But at the end of the day, there was no solid proof. There was nothing that the cops could do. So they knew that he did it, but there really wasn't anything that they could do to put him in jail for it. This all happened at the SMC Cartridge Company garage, and it's a garage that Capone had rented, and it was across the street from the Northside Gang's hangout, if I remember correctly. All of the men that were killed were dressed up in their Sunday finest, and it was just a really tragic thing that happened. I understand why it happened. People had already lost their lives, and it didn't look like there was going to be an end to the violence unless this happened, but it's still a lot of people lost their lives, and it's something that really rocked Chicago. It had a pretty big impact. One of the worst things about the St. Valentine's Day Massacre was that not every single one of them were mafia men. Most of them were, but there was two guys in that group of seven that weren't in the mafia. Adam Heyer, was there and he was a bookkeeper for the mafia so he was just there as like the numbers guy he was expected to show his accounting paperwork and all that information he wasn't in the mafia he wasn't an enforcer or a hitman he was just a bookkeeper that was in the wrong place at the wrong time reinhard schwimmer was an ophthalmologist that was sort of in the mafia. He was kind of in the North Side gang. He was an ophthalmologist, but he had given up his practice earlier so that he could do like sports betting and dog races, and that's how he was making his money. So he wasn't like an official member of the gang, but he hung around them enough that you could consider him a member. Albert Weinshank got caught in the crossfire. He kind of looked like Bugs Moran, and that's why he died. 
the people that were carrying out the killing, they didn't really know Bugs Moran. Like, they knew of him. So when they found Albert, they were like, oh, yep, we got him. And they took him out. But really, he was just somebody that did, like, dry cleaning for them. And he just got caught in the crossfire. John May was also taken out. He was a mechanic. And he was just there because he was doing the cars for the gang. So, like, it wasn't only mafia guys. And that's really what took this up from just a, you know, a gangland shooting where gangsters die to something that rocked the city because it wasn't all just gangsters. Yes, there was Peter Gussenberg and his brother Frank, and they were enforcers in the North Side Gang. Albert Kachalek was also there, and he was the second in command to Bugs Moran. So... It was a gangland shooting, but it wasn't just a gangland shooting, and that's why it had such an impact on the city of Chicago. And honestly, it's probably what led to the end of Al Capone, because they couldn't get him for it. He was in Florida at the time. They couldn't prove that he ordered it, but because of the level of violence, that's what made them start going after his taxes. They were like, well, if we can't take him out for this... We can't prove it. Okay, let's go and look at the revenue that he has. And that's what prompted them to try to get him off the streets. So if this hadn't happened, theoretically, Capone could have had another 30, 40 years on the streets to be a gangster, make money, build his reputation up even further. But he got taken out at such a young age because of this. And because the guys that carried out the killing, which Capone wasn't a part of, but Accardo was, caught a few guys that weren't supposed to be there. It's pretty well known that Accardo was a member of the group that was shooting that day because he was caught multiple times on federal wiretaps, pretty much bragging about his participation in it. So if they wiretap it and they hear it come out of his own mouth, it's pretty safe to say, like, yeah, he played a part in it. Another thing that they heard him confess to on wiretaps was that he was a part of the gang that took out Frankie Yale. And that's another thing that was said to have been ordered by Capone. Frankie Yale was Capone's original boss. That's how Capone got into the mafia. But then he started making waves against him, and he died at the same time as Big Joe Lombardo. Regardless of Accardo being caught on wiretap talking about the fact that he was involved with these two killings, a lot of experts actually believe that Accardo only had peripheral connections and that he wasn't really there for St. Valentine's Day Massacre or the Yale murder. So I don't know why he would lie and say that he was. Maybe to get like clout, but I kind of think he was there. I don't know why he would lie. I feel like it would be really easy for somebody to call him out in that very moment like no i was there you weren't so i don't i don't really get the confusion there but there's a little bit of confusion for what reason i don't know but there is they say that the yale murder was probably carried out by gus winkler fred burke and louis campagna i kind of think ricardo is there the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, it sent shockwaves through Chicago. Like, this was a really big deal when it happened, and it caused the government to crack down on organized crime in the city. On top of that, there's a whole bunch of other things going on for the mafia in the area. In 1932, Capone was convicted of tax evasion, 
And he was sent to prison for an 11-year sentence, which virtually just takes him out of the streets for a very, very long time. That's a very bad thing for the Mafia because Capone is the leader. Frank, the enforcer, Nitty, became the new boss of the outfit. After he got out of jail, he had been serving an 18-month sentence for his own little tax evasion case. But when he got out, he took over the reins and started to lead the outfit. By the time Nitty took over the outfit, Accardo had established a pretty solid reputation for being a moneymaker in the organization, and he really didn't have to prove himself too much anymore. When Nitty took over, he let Accardo establish his own crew. He was also named as the head enforcer of the outfit. That year, it was announced that Tony Accardo was number seven on the Crime Commission's public enemy list. What remained of Capone's crew after he was sent to jail under Paul Rica? Accardo just remained in the same place that he was in, and he was the underboss for the crew. After a long time of building it up, Accardo finally was able to get some income after he had spent so long building up like everything he started to make money on gambling on loan sharking on bookmaking extortion and he would also distribute alcohol and cigarettes that were untaxed because they were illegal and he finally was able to start building that kind of portfolio instead of being on the grind 24 7 he finally got to a point where all the work that he had done had paid off and he was able to actually make some money from it as with all other capos at the time or i mean pretty much ever in the mafia Accardo received a 5% skim off the top of any earnings that the crew made, or what is called a street tax. With that street tax, Accardo would pay the boss of the outfit. So that's how the boss got paid. The, the soldiers on the street would pay him, he would pay the boss. If a crew member decides that they're not going to pay, and they're just going to keep making money, but they're not going to pay up to kind of fund the greater mafia, they were not too long for this world, <laughs> if you know what I mean. Accardo's crew had some pretty heavyweight names in it. He had people like Gus Gussie Alex and Joseph Joey Doves Ayupa in his crew. In 1934, Accardo met Clarice Porzini, a Polish-American chorus girl. They got married, and together they had two daughters, Marie Judith and Linda Lee, and together they adopted two sons, Joseph Frank and Anthony Ross. Despite having all the power in the world, in terms of mafia power, for some reason I cannot locate this guy's, like, height. He's, like, average looking. It, to me, when I'm looking at pictures, it looks like he's about 5'9", five, 5'10". But honestly, he could be seven feet tall for all I know. Nobody knows. Every time I go looking for it, I see, like, they say, oh, this is his height and weight. And then you get there and it says unknown. So I have no idea how not one person in the whole world knows how tall this dude is. But again, if you're looking at pictures of him, it looks like he was about, I don't know, 5'9", five, 5'10", five, maybe six foot. Pretty average size. Several of Accardo's relatives actually made really big careers in the NFL. His daughter, Marie, had married Palmer Pyle, 
a man who was a guard for the Baltimore Colts, the Minnesota Vikings, and the Oakland Raiders. Their son, Eric, the one that was adopted, his name was Eric Kumaro, and he was a linebacker for the Miami Dolphins. And Eric's son, Jake, currently plays as a wide receiver for the Buffalo Bills. Eric's sister, Cheryl, married John Bossa, who played defensive end for the Dolphins. They had two sons together, Joey and Nick, both of whom currently play defensive ends, Joey for the Los Angeles Chargers and Nick for the San Francisco 49ers. For most of the time that he was married, Accardo lived with his wife and family in River Forest, Illinois. And they lived in luxury, okay? They had a six-bedroom, six-bathroom house on Franklin Avenue in River Forest. And it had two bowling lanes, an indoor swimming pool, and a freaking pipe organ. This place was beautiful. The only problem that comes with having a beautiful house is that he does not have a job on the books. So... When they put Capone away for 11 years, they put Frank Nitti away for 18 months, and now they're looking at Accardo and they're saying, wow, you have this beautiful six-bedroom, six-bathroom house. How did you make the money for that? When they started asking those kinds of questions, he bought a ranch home at 1400 North Ashland Avenue in River Forest, and he had a vault installed in that house so that he could keep all his money and there's really not any way that anybody could prove what was or wasn't in that vault. Next door, he had his friend Dr. Jim Carto living on Ashland Avenue in the Mars Candy Mansion and he was rumored to have assisted in providing medical care. So if he went out on a job and he caught a few bullets. He was able to just ring up his neighbor, Dr. Jim, and he would come over and help. We all know that a mafia doctor probably is one of the most important roles that you can fill. So the fact that his doctor lived next door, it was a very, very helpful thing. Because he lived in such close proximity and their names sounded so similar, Dr. Carto and Accardo, they both became pretty respected members of the family. So Dr. Carto, who's just coming over and helping if there's like a gunshot wound or something like that, he becomes a respected member of the family, even in the press. He would be talked about in the newspapers, and he said, there's like, oh, this is cool. Him and his wife, Rose Kalenko, who was a nurse, and his brother, Dr. Leon Kalenko, were rumored to be Accardo's personal physicians that would help if there was any medical care that was necessary off the books. On the books, Accardo's official job was that he was a beer salesman for a Chicago brewery. Don't ask me how the hell he pulled that off. I have no idea. But he was able to put on paper that he made money at a Chicago brewery. One of Ricardo's biggest missions that he really, really wanted to carry out was that he wanted to get the outfit into legitimate earning. And he did. He helped the outfit to make millions of dollars while pushing the organization away from crime that had gotten them into trouble in the past. 
All throughout the 1940s, Accardo just continued gaining power, gaining money, and making the Chicago outfit stronger and stronger with the millions of dollars that he was pumping into it. As the decades went on, senior members of the outfit were constantly investigated and charged with using threats of strike action by labor unions that they controlled because they're able to extort millions of dollars from Hollywood studios. It's really easy until you get caught. Frank Nitti, the one that had been leading the outfit in the past, had gotten caught and went on trial and was about to start serving his second prison sentence. But he was claustrophobic, and the idea of going back to prison for a second time was just too much, and he committed suicide in 1943. Obviously, he did that to avoid having to go sit in prison again. Rika and Accardo worked together and ran the outfit for 30 years until Rika died in 1972. Even before he passed away, Rika received a 10-year prison sentence for his part in the Hollywood scandal. And when he got that prison sentence, Accardo became the acting boss of the outfit. Three years later, when Rika was barred from contact with any mobsters or mafia members at all, as a condition of his parole, Accardo became the actual boss. Not the acting boss, the actual boss of the outfit. But... At the end of the day, he shared power with Rika, and Rika still remained a very powerful member of the Mafia, but he had to remain a background consultant because if he was caught mingling with these people, he was going back to jail. In the late 1940s, while Accardo was leading the outfit, they started moving into slot machines and vending machines. These are, you know, the shadier ways to make legitimate money. And on the illegitimate side of things, they started selling counterfeit cigarettes and liquor tax stamps, and they started to expand their narcotics smuggling operation, which is just the biggest cash cow in the world. The most risky, because drugs put you in jail for a really long time. So it's really risky, but it's also a very, very, very lucrative way to make money. Accardo placed a lot of slot machines in gas stations, in restaurants, in bars, and pretty much any locale that had a lot of foot traffic, Accardo would put slot machines there all over their territory, so it made a lot of money. Even outside of Chicago, the outfit started to move into Las Vegas and other areas to start to gain even bigger of a foothold and even started to take gaming away from the five families of New York City. And that was helpful because they have New York City, which is all the way across the country. They don't really need to be worried about this. I'm thinking he probably was working together with Carlos Marcello because Carlos Marcello took over as boss of the family in 1947, which is pretty much exactly around the time that we're talking about right now. So I don't see it listed anywhere that Accardo and Carlos Marcello were friendly, but they both existed in the same area at the same time and they both had leadership. So I'm assuming that they're working together or at the very least, they split up territory within Las Vegas and 
New Orleans and, and that area in order to both be able to thrive in the area. Eventually, the Chicago outfit started to dominate a lot of the Western United States. In order to try to limit the exposure of the Chicago outfit to legal prosecution, Accardo would start to pull the outfit away from traditional activities like labor racketeering and extortion and try to move it into the legal yet seedy areas such as slot machines, cigarette sales, the stuff that's legal and you pay taxes on it, but it's not something that the most upstanding citizen would like to do. He also would take the illegal businesses and make them legal. So, like, the outfit had a brothel business, and he turned it into a call girl service, which is the same exact thing, it's just doing it legally. And in Las Vegas, we know that prostitution's pretty much legal, so he just did it in a way that he got a business license, and he got all the paperwork that he needed so that they couldn't be arrested for doing things illegally because they weren't doing things illegally. The result of all this hard work was a golden era of profitability and influence for the entire Chicago outfit, and his hard work really paid off. Accardo and Rico worked together, and they had a habit of keeping a low profile. They let the flashier figures like Sam Giancana and Carlos Marcello, they let them go and attract attention and take on all the media and everything and they kind of hung back and they didn't really need the media attention they didn't need to be in the newspapers they were just making money and they were a lot less open to persecution because they kept such a lower profile for example when professional wrestlers lou albano and Tony Altamar, wrestling as mafia-inspired tag team called the Sicilians. Well, ladies and gentlemen, these uh, dudes I've got up here with me now are known as the Sicilians. Came to Chicago in 1961. Accardo persuaded them to drop the gimmick and avoid any mob-related publicity. In other words, he didn't want them to be calling attention onto the mafia so he went to them and was like listen i you can operate you can do whatever the hell you want to do but what you're gonna do is you're gonna stop pretending you're in the mafia because you're not in the mafia and by you running around and acting like you are it's really having a negative impact on the people who are actually in the mafia and we're going to jail so you're gonna stop that right now or i'm going to make you and they did they stopped the gimmick of being in the mafia and they just, they wrestled on their own platform and it was fine. By using tactics like these, Accardo and Rica were able to run the outfit for a lot longer than Capone was because Capone was only 30 something when he went to jail for 11 years. So Capone really wasn't in power for very long. But because Accardo and Rico were much more low-key, they didn't need the flashy cars and the jewelry and the media attention. Because they were able to stay out of the limelight, they were able to stay around for a lot longer than Capone was. Rica was quoted once as saying, Accardo has more brains for breakfast than Capone had in a lifetime. By 1957, the entire Western Mafia was under Accardo's control. Even its public image was a lot more acceptable for the people of Chicago because the organization seemed to only kill its own members. 
it didn't deal in narcotics, and it kept a lot of the areas in Chicago under control, which is something, again, you didn't see with Capone. You saw things like the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, and the St. Valentine's Day Massacre had, like, three or four dudes that weren't even in the mafia. They were just in the wrong place, wrong time. And stuff like that didn't happen under Ricardo and Rica's leadership. So they were able to continue operating because people didn't really mind them. If a gangster showed up dead here and there, it was whatever. As long as it wasn't some orthodontist that's showing up dead on a sidewalk, people really didn't mind. The FBI director, J. Edgar Hoover, believed that the FBI should have little interest in the mafia because its operations were pretty much limited and local, and it didn't really involve interstate commerce. They were very local crimes or local low-down seedy stuff where the FBI was a lot more interested in terrorism or a federal thing that's going over state lines. This person's communicating from Las Vegas to Alabama. And the mafia, they really didn't do that. They had their own sections. So you had the five families in New York, you had Jersey, you had New England, you had Las Vegas, you had California with Jack Dragna. They all kept to their own corners of the country. And until things like the Appalachian meeting, they didn't really come together and band together in one place very often. So the FBI and J. Edgar Hoover, he just kind of didn't want to be bothered with them. And that's exactly what they wanted. Very little people in the national public had any interest in disciplining them or putting them in jail when they weren't bothering anybody. That all changed in November of 1957, when the mafia families of New York and other states around them were at war once again. So, it lasted a while, but it felt like it didn't last very long at all. The national leaders of the organized crime syndicate decided that they were going to have a meeting, and it was going to include all the major families so that they could settle their differences and try to end the war and come to peace so that they wouldn't be on the radar of the cops anymore. They met on November 14th, 1957 in Appalachian, New York. I've said this in probably every video I've ever recorded, but if you are to follow history's telling of the events... You know, they noticed some scary cars and they noticed some seedy individuals in town, so they arrested everybody. That's not what happened. They had wiretaps on multiple members and they knew for weeks and weeks and weeks that this meeting was going to happen. They had everything planned to intercept the meeting and the mafia just thought they were a lot more stealthy and a lot better off than they actually were. They were talking over the phones, and they thought that the police weren't able to listen in, but they were. So the official story is like, oh, we noticed a bunch of Cadillacs, we noticed a bunch of out-of-state mafia members, and we did something about it. They had everything in place long before the actual events happened. It didn't take long for the media to get a hold of the story and broadcast the fact that the meeting was happening. Because the media broadcast it, that obviously caught the attention of J. Edgar Hoover. Because people had come in from all over the country to Appalachian, New York, you got all these mafia members from all over the country, and they're all converging on this one little town in New York. And that is where you start getting into the territory of crossing state lines to conspire to commit a crime 
And that is where the FBI starts feeling like it's their place to step in and do something about it. Because of all this exposure, because it's something that's catching his attention, Hoover kind of felt forced into taking action. And he had everybody that was in attendance at the Appalachian meeting that he could get his hands on arrested. From that point on, Accardo and anybody else that was arrested was the subject of intense investigations. Accardo testified at the Kefauver trials, and he withstood the investigations, and there were a lot of them. There were investigations into organized crime, there was investigations into racketeering, and in 1950, he pretty much pled the fifth, and they had that little script that they had to read off, like, I do not feel it is in my best interest to self-incriminate by testifying, and you just keep reading that off and off as they ask questions. That's what Accardo did. He just pled the fifth. He shut his mouth. In the spring of 1958, Accardo was now being investigated for income tax fraud. Soon enough, the McClellan Committee investigation of organized crime would subpoena Accardo to testify at the McClellan Committee as well. Appearing before the committee, he gave only his name and address and then immediately, again, started invoking his Fifth Amendment right. And he invoked that right 172 times. Even with the intensified investigations and scrutiny from the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover, it didn't really matter. By the late 1950s, the mob under Accardo's leadership had pretty much accomplished all its goals, and it was running like a well-oiled machine. Although he did enjoy the prosperity that the mafia was feeling, Accardo had kind of gotten bored with his job. He's just kind of like, this is not exciting, you know? Like, it's been almost 20 years. Everything is going smoothly, and that's great, but I'm just bored. Like, Jesus. Like any other man of his age who had been extremely, extremely successful in the career that he did, he's in his early 50s, and he's in very good physical financial and mental health, Accardo is now being urged by his wife Clarice to step aside and let somebody else take over as the boss, let somebody else take over with the risks, with the work, and just kind of sit back and enjoy the rest of your life and enjoy the fruits of all the labor that you did while you were young. Even though he knew it was time, he knew he was getting older, but he also knew that he couldn't just walk away. He was known for saying that mobsters only get out of the mob feet first. It's an old expression, pretty much that means you only get out of the mafia when you die. So even though he didn't want to fully walk away, he did step down as boss and let somebody else take over, and he decided to become the consigliere, or the wise counselor, the one that kind of stepped in and took care of issues if there was a problem that came about. He was the one that knew the mafia law. He was the one that could give counsel, but he wasn't the decision maker. He wasn't the one with the stress on his shoulders, and he's not the one that the FBI is looking to lock up every day. 
So he didn't step down. He just stepped aside so somebody else could take over as boss, but he did maintain one of the most powerful positions within the mafia. After 1957, Accardo officially turned over his position as boss of the outfit to Sam Giancana because he was just getting tired of the heat from the IRS. The IRS is constantly trying to get him on tax evasion. And Sam Giancana, he doesn't mind that. The more power, the better for Giancana. And he's all about it. And Accardo is just kind of like, I just want to live the rest of my life in peace. So if you would like to be boss, here you go. I'll be consigliere. Take it. The good thing about it is that he still commanded the absolute utmost respect and dignity. Every single person in the mafia looked upon him with the most respect ever. Like, one of the most powerful men to ever step foot in the mafia, and he knew that. And he really didn't need to work for it anymore. He put in his time, he made his bones. Giancana still had to obtain the sanction of Accardo and Rica on any major business decisions, including if he decided to take somebody out. Eventually, this working relationship did eventually end up breaking down. Unlike Accardo, Giancana, who had been widowed, he lived a very ostentatious lifestyle. He went to the posh nightclubs. He dated high-profile singers. He drove the Maybach and wore the Balenciaga of his time. You know, it's not those, but that's what I mean. Like, he was just the very in-your-face, I-have-money-I-have-power, ha-ha-ha-ha-ha-ha type of person. And Ricardo wasn't like that. And neither was Rika. Giancana also absolutely refused to distribute any of the lavish profits that the outfit saw from their casinos in Iran or Central America, and some people expected him to. Some people expected him to go to other countries and spend or give some of the profits of the outfit for, like, rank-and-file members, and he's like, absolutely not. No. No, 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 no. I don't care. I'm staying right here. Thank you very much. A lot of people in the outfit after Ricardo handed over power to Giancana started to feel like Giancana was attracting too much attention from the media, from the FBI, and they see he always has a tail from the Chicago police. He always has an FBI tale. There's always some kind of listening device around. And it's kind of the same thing that you saw with Gotti. He's this larger-than-life character that everybody in the country sees, and people are running up on the sidewalk and asking for his signature, and that's not what it's about, being in the mafia. You're not some kind of celebrity. You're not a movie star, and you're not supposed to be. So when Giancana or Gotti or any of these guys are living these lavish lifestyles and they love signing the autographs, they love showing off their power, the people in the outfit start to get very uncomfortable with that. Around 1966, after they spent a year in jail on federal contempt of court charges, Accardo and Rica stepped in to once again take power of the outfit and they replaced Giancana and Ayupa because people just weren't happy with how they were attracting attention. On June 18th, 1975, after spending most of his outfit exile years in Mexico and 
pretty much being booted from Mexico, Giancana was killed in the basement apartment of his home in Oak Park, Illinois, while cooking his family a meal of Italian sausages and escarole. Not that it's important to the story whatsoever, but escarole is like kind of like lettuce or spinach in a way. It's like a leafy green type of thing. Apparently it has a bitter taste. I never even heard of it until this. So it's just, I guess like a side. I don't know why. I, I, I will never understand why people like vegetables. I really don't. I'm not a vegetable person. I feel like if there's green stuff on my plate, you're expecting me to be a cow and go out to pasture. I don't like green stuff. It's nasty. Get it away from my plate. But that's what Sham Giancana was cooking when he was killed in the basement apartment of his home. In 1972, Rika passed away, leaving Ocardo as the ultimate authority of the outfit. After Giancana passed away, there was a series of successors, but nobody really had the skills and the leadership acumen or the staying power of Accardo. In 1978, while Accardo vacationed in California, a bunch of burglars broke into his river forest home. Shortly after committing this crime, three of the suspected thieves and four related people, so seven altogether, were found strangled with their throats cut. And good frickin' riddance, because, like, who do you think you are? There is so many other things in the world for you to do, and you go after the freaking home of the mafia boss? Nobody's sad that you died, bro. Nobody. That's gotta be the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life. Do a little recon before you go and break in and steal from people. Come on. Obviously, law enforcement knows that Accardo ordered the killings in retaliation for the burglary, but there's nothing they can do. They can't prove it. How are you going to prove it? Nobody got caught and nobody went to jail for these seven murders. In 2002, there was a theory that was confirmed on the witness stand by Nicholas Calabrese, an outfit turncoat or rat, who had participated in all of those murders. The surviving assassins were all convicted in the family secrets trial, and they were all sentenced to very long prison sentences. But Accardo was not one of them. He ordered it, but he did not take part in it, and they never could prove that he had anything to do with it, so he didn't go to jail. It was just the people that carried it out that did. In the late 1970s, Accardo bought a home in Palm Springs, California, and whenever he had any business in Chicago or had to preside over any outfits, sit-downs, or mediate disputes or anything, he would just fly back over to Chicago. It was no big deal. But he got to live most of the time in Palm Springs, California, which is really nice. It's a lot better weather. You know, Illinois, that is not for the weak. <laughs> that cold, that makes a difference as you get older. It's It's a big difference. So... Being able to live in Palm Springs, California, and just go to Chicago when he absolutely was needed made his life a lot better. By the late 70s, his personal holdings included legal investments and commercial office buildings. He had retail centers. He had lumber farms. He had paper factories, hotels, car dealerships, trucking companies, newspaper companies, 
restaurants, travel agencies. This man diversified the absolute hell out of his portfolio, and he was just raking in the money. He wasn't working on any of it. He hired people to run every single one of the companies, and he just got to sit back and enjoy the money. Eventually, though, as all things do, Accardo's criminal past eventually caught up with him in the 1980s, and he was indicted on federal racketeering charges. He was found guilty and sentenced to prison, but he was released on parole only a few years later due to his advanced age and poor health. Pretty much, he committed a bunch of crimes when he was younger. They weren't able to prove it until later, and then by the time they were able to prove it and get him in jail, he was able to get out because he's like, yo, I'm old. Like, that was a whole different lifetime. I'm a totally different person now, and they let him out of prison. He spent the last years of his life in Barrington Hills, Illinois, living with his daughter and son-in-law, which I think is awesome because that's how, I mean, my dad lives in the cottage in my backyard and I love it that way. So I think it's cool that that's a pretty common thing and it's not like weird that a daughter and son-in-law will live with the father. On May 22nd, 1992, Anthony Accardo died of respiratory and heart conditions at the age of 86 years old. Accardo is buried in a crypt in the mausoleum at Queen of Heaven Cemetery in Hillside, Illinois. To the right of his burial site is the crypt of Paul Rica, Accardo's closest and longest lasting friend. Although Accardo killed many people and broke many laws, even law enforcement agents respected him, and everybody gave him a nod of approval and acknowledged what a good leader he was. He preferred to settle disputes without bloodshed, and that is a huge part of how he was able to stay in power for so long and gain so much respect. Accardo was probably one of the most important leaders in organized crime, and the last link to the Capone era, and the Mafia took a real hit when he died in 1992. But he was able to build the Mafia into what it would later become, and his memory will probably always live on in Chicago. So what made Tony Accardo such a successful and feared figure in the world of organized crime? First and foremost, Accardo was known for his intelligence and his strategic thinking. He was a master at manipulating situations to his advantage, and he was able to stay one step ahead of law enforcement, of his enemies, of rival gangs, or anybody that wanted to step against him. He was also known for his ability to delegate tasks, and he built a strong team of loyal followers. He wasn't one of those people that was just like, oh, just, just give it to me, I'll do it. You know, he didn't get frustrated, and he was able to allow people to gain their own strength, and he didn't feel like other people gaining strength took away from his strength. He surrounded himself with trusted lieutenants who were willing to carry out any orders that he would give without question, and he was known for rewarding those people who were loyal to him. He recognized that there was plenty to go around. He didn't need to hoard resources. There was enough to go around and everybody could be comfortable. In addition to his intelligence and his strategic thinking, 
Accardo was also known for his brutality and his willingness to stoop to violence to get what he wanted if he tried everything else and he didn't get what he wanted. He was not afraid to get his hands dirty. He was not afraid to have a guilty conscience. And he was known for ordering the murder of anybody who crossed him or threatened his power. Despite his reputation for violence, he was never known for being the crazy person that would just go off on a hairpin trigger. He was known best for his ability to operate in the shadows, avoid public scrutiny, avoid the media, avoid law enforcement attention, and just keep a low profile and enjoy the fruits of his labor. He often used intermediaries to carry out his orders, and that made it a lot more difficult for law enforcement to gather any evidence against him. All of that isn't to say that Accardo didn't have his trials and tribulations. He faced numerous investigations and legal battles throughout his career, and he was even rumored to be involved in the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. Which makes sense because if you watch my Carlos Marcello video, before I saw the FBI documents, I fully believed that Carlos Marcello ordered the hit of JFK. Now I kind of believe it was the Russians, but I don't know. Despite those controversies, though, Accardo remained a very powerful and influential figure in the world of organized crime all the way until he died in 1992. He was known as one of the greatest and most successful mafia bosses in the history of the American mafia, and you still feel his legacy in that group today. So that is all I have for Tony Accardo. Tell me in the comments what you think of his crime story. Do you believe that he was as powerful and untouchable as he was described to be? Or do you think that his success was kind of exaggerated and people trumped him up a lot more after he died? Let me know in the comments below. Thanks so much for watching. Join me next week as I delve into the lives and legacies of some of the most fascinating and infamous figures in history. And please don't forget to like, share, subscribe, follow, do all the things. I love you guys so much. Bye.